You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. First Look offers a smart inside take on the day's politics. In this episode, Jonathan Capehart sits down with Yasmeen Abutalib, Eugene Robinson, and George Will to discuss the surge in COVID-19 cases in the January 6th congressional investigation. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. There's been a lot of troubling news this week about COVID-19, particularly about the surge in cases among the un- unvaccinated due to the, uh, the Delta variant. Yasmin Abutaleb covers healthcare policy here at The Post, and she joins me now. Welcome to First Look. Thanks for having me. Actually, I think I should say welcome back. You've been here before. So let's talk about, about trial, COVID yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the surge in cases. How big a threat does the rise in cases pose right now? It's a pretty big threat. And you, you can see both in their public statements and just in reporting that the administration is really worried about this. I think the thing that maybe not everyone understands is just how transmissible the Delta variant is. It's about 1.5, 1.8 times more transmissible than the variant of COVID we had circulating this time last year, when, of course, we didn't have vaccines or uh, some of the treatments and countermeasures that we have now. But it is it is very serious. There's still a little over 30 percent of the country that has a, a, adults who haven't gotten a shot. Of course, kids under 12 still can't get vaccines. Um, so there is a lot of con- and you've seen cases climb at an alarming rate in the last two or three weeks. We were at 26,000 cases just about a week or two ago. Uh, yesterday it was at 55,000 cases. So this is a pretty alarming rise. Yeah, in, in fact, the Post reported um, this week that the daily number of positive positive COVID cases has almost tripled in the past month from about 12,000 to 35,000. Is the surge due to the Delta variant or is it due to some other or additional reasons? It is due to the Delta variant. That's what's driving it. The CDC director said earlier this week that the agency estimates 83% of cases are because of the Delta variant, but it's also because we still have such a large portion of the U.S. population that hasn't gotten a vaccine. And the Biden administration has stressed this over and over. They've been calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated. So more than 97% of people who are hospitalized for COVID right now are people who are unvaccinated. I think 99% of deaths or more than 99% of deaths are people who are unvaccinated. So it's those two factors that are a very sort of toxic brew right now in the country's pandemic response. Can you talk about the debate that's uh, going on within the Biden administration over mask mandates? Because you've got um, Los Angeles reimposing mask mandates. Uh, so is San Francisco. Yeah, the Bay, the Bay Area has reimposed mask mandates. Are we heading towards a, a situation where the CDC or the Biden administration is going to say, you know what, put the masks back on as, as official policy? It's, it's hard to say. So the CDC had released guidelines back in May saying that if you were vaccinated, you didn't have to wear masks indoors or outdoors. And after that, you saw a lot of uh, businesses relax their policies about indoor masking. You've seen it in the grocery stores and um, in various retail shops. And then, of course, most people don't wear them outside anymore. So I think the challenge here is that with the outbreak moving forward, it's not going to be the same as what we've seen in the last few waves of COVID. These are going to be pretty regional outbreaks based on places that have low vaccination rates. Right now, for instance, Florida is responsible for one in five new cases in the U.S., and that's a real hot spot because 
vaccination rates are pretty low in that state. It's like that in a lot of parts of the South and some parts of the West. So it's not going to be even across the country. So what makes sense for one state or one city might not make sense for another. So I think the Biden administration is mostly going to defer to states and localities to make these decisions. But my colleagues did report earlier this week that the CDC was evaluating data and, and determining whether it made sense to recommend masks indoors. But I think it is important to stress that it's not really up to the White House or to the administration. Mm. States and, and cities are going to have to make these decisions for themselves. Well, you, you mentioned Florida, but what about Arkansas and Missouri? Any, any uh, idea on how those states are responding to the rise in cases there and whether they're talking about mask mandates? You don't see that discussion. And the, the challenging thing with those states is that they were not really enforcing mask mandates even last year before we had right. vaccinations and, and lower case rates overall. So, I mean, the challenge with these states, with Republican governors who are extremely opposed to reinstating mandates, you saw the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, another state with fairly low vaccination rates, forbid schools from requiring masks, forbid businesses from requiring them. You, of course, see a lot of Republicans railing against the Biden administration's vaccination campaign. Some have started to change their tune on that a little bit. But there is this really stark divide in the country right now between the Biden White House and lots of Democratic governors and some Republicans who are really pushing vaccines, looking at mask mandates, whether they make sense. And then the other part of the country that is wants to move on from this, has wanted to move on from this for a long time and is pretty opposed to reinstating any kind of mandate. Um, in the little bit of time we have left, I have to ask you about uh, the shift among some conservatives on the vaccine issue. This week, we saw House Minority Whip Steve Scalise get his first uh, first vaccine shot on Sunday, citing the threat posed by the Delta variant. Uh, Fox News host Sean Hannity is encouraging viewers to get vaccinated, although apparently yesterday he backtracked on that. But anyway, what do you make? How significant is this shift in tone? It's not exactly an em emphatic endorsement, you know, the, in the way you described the, the Hannity backtracking. It is important because Fox News especially has millions and millions of viewers. And I think it's, it's pretty clear that viewers really do listen to what hosts like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson have to say. Of course, Carlson is still not recommending vaccines and even railing against Fox's decision to air an ad encouraging people to get vaccinated. But I think when you're talking about Steve Scalise and some Republicans talking a bit more about this, it's a couple of things. One is there is a lot of concern about the Delta variant and how hard it's going to hit Steve Scalise state or other Republican House members who come from states with low vaccination rates and what the, the next couple of months are going to look like for them. It is a lot of Republicans who are refusing to get the vaccine, which means that they are disproportionately going to be the ones who are hospitalized and dying from this. And of course, you saw the market start to turn this week on fears of the Delta variant. So I think it's a confluence of factors, but it's, it's clear that this is not going anywhere. The Delta variant is a serious threat, and there's just no denying it based on how quickly cases have risen in just the last three weeks. Yasmin, we are out of time, but I got to ask you this one last quick question because I think I'm putting the, the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Your last name, Abu Taleb or Abu Taleb? Abu Taleb. Ah, I see. I knew I mispronounced it the first time. <laughs> Yasmin Abu Taleb, thank you very much for coming back to First Look. Thank you so much. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we'll find Washington Post columnists Eugene Robinson and George Will. Welcome back to First Look. Glad to be with you. 
Great to be here, Jonathan. All right, let's start with the select committee on uh, investigation on January 6th, the January 6th in, uh, insurrection. Speaker Pelosi blocked two of the Republicans named by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. So he pulled all of the Republicans from the committee and vowed to launch his own investigation. Eugene, I'm going to start with you on this. How did Speaker Pelosi handle this? And is there anything she could have done to have this bipartisan investigation be by, have this investigation be bipartisan or was opting out out of it the um, Republican plan all along? Right. I think she's done all she can to make it bipartisan. I mean, let's back up for, for a minute. Uh, you, you know, the original idea was to have a bipartisan uh, outside commission of, uh, of, of notables and luminaries um, uh, Beards to, to examine it uh, and, and give us a full report, uh, Kerner Commission or 9-11 Commission or whatever, that's, that didn't happen. That was, was uh, vetoed by the by Senate Republicans who wouldn't go along with it. So um, it's down to the House, it's down to Speaker Pelosi uh, to do what investigation can be done. And so she uh, decided to set up a select committee, which I think was appropriate. Uh, and um, and Kevin McCarthy, uh, the minority leader, decided um, to send a bunch of clowns uh, as the Republican uh, contingent on that committee. And um, Speaker Pelosi said no. She said no to two of the um, of the congressmen. Um, that McCarthy wanted to put on the committee. One was Jim Jordan, um, mm -hmm. uh, who is all, uh, all, uh, <laughs> uh, all hat and no cap. Hat. I knew that's where you were going to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he's 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 a he's a performance artist and not a very good one, but uh, but not a person of substance at all. Um, uh, and um, and Jim Banks um, from Indiana, who would have been the uh, ranking member on the committee uh, who uh, immediately on Monday put out a statement saying, well, we're gonna investigate um, uh, the you know, readiness of the, of the Capitol uh, to face a riot, which is an appropriate thing to, to investigate. It should, shouldn't be the first thing. I think you first should investigate the terrorists and not the people who are trying to defend against it, but it's appropriate to look at whether the, the Capitol was ready. But he also said, and the, and the response of the Biden administration, well, there was no Biden administration on January 6th, as you well know. There wasn't a Biden administration until January 20th. So, uh, and he and he is a, he's he's another of these sort of Trumpist um, uh, loudmouths. And so um, she said no. She said no. We will well, take the other Republicans, but no, these guys can't serve. And McCarthy said, okay, I'll pull the rest off the committee, which is I, I think he um he didn't want to participate all along mm -hmm. and so there we have it and she had Liz Cheney on the committee who was uh, a a a dot in the world republican uh, she's likely to add um perhaps another republican maybe Adam Kinzinger um uh so she will have republicans on the committee uh, they just won't be the republicans that Kevin McCarthy wanted mm -hmm. All right, George, I want your view and specifically do you think leader McCarthy basically set this up by putting someone on like Jim Jordan uh, on the select committee. I mean, you can't seriously say that he, you know, really wants to be uh, a credible partner 
in, uh, on the select committee, meaning McCarthy, if he's putting Jim Jordan on the committee? Well, I can't, I can't read his mind, so I don't want to speculate about his motives. However, uh, there is in legislative affairs something called a poison pill. If you really want to defeat a, a, a larger bill, you add a, a particular measure that will drive people away from the bill. And it, it's uh, perhaps uh, Jim Jordan was the poison pill in this case. Uh, as Gene says, uh, this is not like the 9-11, the Kennedy assassination, the uh, commissions of that sort. In those cases, the country was attacked in, in some way, in, in some sense, by a We were all together. There was no division of opinion about it. What we're experiencing here is that the very toxic political culture that produced January 6th in the first place now almost precludes a kind of investigation of it, which does not mean, by the way, there won't be investigations. There are all these FBI cases being brought uh, in courts all over the country. Gene uh, can correct me on this. I just assume there's a Woodward book in the works on this. Uh, so <laughs> journalism and are going, to, are going to provide lots of investigations of this. I want to say one thing about Gene raised the question about the secondary importance, which I agree it is secondary, of investigating the capital defenses and the capital police response. It happens all the time in Washington that when an institution fails, it turns around and says, well, the reason we failed is we need more money. And the more money is then forthcoming. So already the Capitol Police have said we're going to open offices. Gene may remember that these are one in California, maybe two in California, to investigate what? The Capitol Police are now going to investigate the seeds of future attacks on the Capitol Police. We have abundant law enforcement in this country. We don't need to reward them with new offices and new appropriations. <laughs> um, All right. I, let, uh, me, let, me, let me agree with George on that, by the way. Um, uh, you know, the Capitol Police have their own issues to deal with here in Washington. Um, and it's, it's the, the most unaccountable of Washington's umpteen uh, police forces. Uh, and um, uh, they, you know, I, so I'd like to take a look at the Capitol Police. But again, that's secondary to taking a look at the people who actually invaded uh, the Capitol. Right. But he's right. They don't need an office in California. <laughs> okay. So in terms of looking at the people who actually invaded the Capitol, one of the things that Leader McCarthy said uh, after pulling all, all of the Republicans on select committee, he said, you know what? We're going to do our own investigation. And we're gonna we're we're gonna get to the bottom of this, um, George. How credible would a McCarthy-led, Republican-only-led investigation into the January sixth insurrection be? It wouldn't be credible at all. And by the way, this is a complicated business investigating. It's not something you do out of your hat. Uh, these are not trained investigators. These are supposedly legislators. We'll leave that. Uh, designation aside for a moment. So uh, th this is spiraling down into yet another example of dysfunctional institutions, and the country will look at it and say, what else is new? All right, so um, let's move on to infrastructure, um, since I'm, I'm, I'm riffing off your conversation a minute ago, George, about the Capitol Police and money. 
And one of the one of the issues now in the infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, is uh, haggling over money. Last I saw, over transit versus highway funding. Um, just I don't know if you know the details and the ins and outs of you know what that's all about in this current package. But what do you think overall of where we are right now in terms of a bipartisan agreement? on the infrastructure package actually getting done. It was supposed to be done this week. Now we're saying it could be done. A vote could happen, a procedural vote could happen on Monday uh, with all the details in place. Your view? Well, first, it would be nice to have a bipartisan agreement on what the word infrastructure means. Uh, is it <laughs> yeah, infrastructure yeah, the way the common sense talks about it, what we used to call internal improvements, you know, bridges, highways, airports, harbors, stuff like that, or, is it uh, human infrastructure, which means everything else in, under God's green, uh, under the eye of eternity, including school lunches, or does it mean cultural infrastructure? A phrase coined now to uh, by those who want to revive the Federal Writers Project of the 1930s to put out of work writers back to work. Uh, although why a writer needs a subsidy to write, I, I don't. Yeah, but anyway, so first of all, we'd it'd be nice to have a definition of this. Second, they're arguing about how to pay for it. Now, that's quaint in itself. We don't pay for things that the government does. We borrow the money for it. I mean, everyone's agreed on that, that uh, almost everything that is being done will not be paid for by either taxes uh, now or by cuts in spending elsewhere. It'll be paid for by primarily by borrowing. Gene, I mean, this is a good thing. Um, um, George's point: we don't pay for anything; we borrow the money. And yet, one mm -hmm. of the big, yeah. one of the big issues, one of the big hangups on this particular bill is the argument between the Democrats and Republicans over how to pay for this. In particular, Republicans objecting to the IRS enforcement mechanism that Democrats were pushing as a way of helping to finance this bill. So your your view on the financing of this nearly $1 trillion uh, infrastructure bipartisan package? Um, my view my view is that it's largely semantic, uh, the argument. Um, uh, George is right. We, we don't actually pay for things. We borrow the money. And you can argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. There's a whole, um, you know, there there are very, very eminent economists who argue that that's a very good thing, especially if you're the United States and you're the world's reserve um, currency and, um, uh, and you need, uh, at a moment like this, um, above all, when uh, coming out of the pandemic or trying to come out of the pandemic and you need uh, to keep putting money into the economy, that that it's a that it's a good thing and not at all um, harmful to borrow money. I, I'm not an economist, uh, though I sometimes play one on television. But um, <laughs> uh, but I so I I, I won't uh, uh, I won't venture to say whether that's right or wrong. But this but the, the but it is a kind of angels on the head of a pin in, in terms of arguing about the the pay for as they call it because uh, everyone agrees um, uh, in, in everybody at least in the bipartisan group that's doing the, the, the hard infrastructure bill everyone agrees that uh, they're going to use dynamic scoring 
um, to, to decide whether it's paid for and how much it really costs and whatever. And dynamic scoring basically involves assuming that the spending is going to be so good for the economy that it's going to bring in more money. Uh, and you can make whatever kind of assumptions you want. Um, and so it's a question about, you know, what, um, what, what figures get written down as opposed to where actual dollar bills uh, come from. Uh, and it, that, that seems to me something that they ought to be able to work out. You know, Gene, you're yeah. mentioning, you know, the, 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 oh, sorry, George, you wanted to jump in? Yes, you want bipartisanship, be careful what you wish for. For years, Democrats have doubled over with laughter until their ribs ached when Republicans would say, our tax cuts will, under dynamic scoring, pay for themselves. Uh, and they almost always exaggerated the beneficent effects of their tax cuts. Now the Democrats are saying, our spending will pay for itself. Trust me, better school lunches will make, I don't know, more nutritious work, breakfast for workers and all the rest. And it's all fanciful, but they, the latest one is a, a wildly extravagant uh, estimate of how much more they will get from the Internal Revenue Service if they spend more money on the Internal Revenue Service uh, in collecting uncollected taxes. So as I say, you want bipartisanship, this is what it looks like. <laughs> 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 but when, but George, the spending, you know, spending a bunch of money has always been kind of a, a thing that both parties could agree on. That's why it's such a, it's, it's, it's a surprise actually that's taken them so long to agree to spend a whole bunch of money on infrastructure. Um, uh, that's the, um, that's the dysfunction. That's always been kind of, kind of popular going back to the days of, uh, of uh, earmarks and everything. There's no question when you tell the American people, hey, go to your mailboxes, you're going to find a check for $1,200, whatever it is, that, that polls really well free money. But the interesting thing to me about Mr. Biden is this. He said this week, the American people want the investments. No one says the word spending anymore. The investments that he in his program. But they don't want it enough that he is going to ask them to pay for it because as a candidate and again as president, his going in position is no one making less than $400,000, that is 98% of the country is going to be exempt from any additional expense in their, in their tax bill for what the government is doing. So if you're really confident that the American people want all these investments, wouldn't you say that they ought to be willing to pay something for it? And that is part of the the, the debate uh, ongoing that um, we're just going to have the leave there. But George can't end this discussion without talking about baseball. Not that I'm a baseball fan, but you are perhaps the nation's biggest and most <laughs> preeminent baseball fan. And and you wrote about the national pa pastime quote: "The quality of the game as entertainment is declining. What's the problem, and how do you want to fix it?" The problem is that everyone, players, managers, pitchers, position players, everyone is behaving reasonably on the basis of abundant, accurate information. That is, we now can measure spin rates of pitches with new technology. With, uh, we can measure the tendencies of hitters on certain kinds of pitchers. We know what launch angle will do as batters try to hit the ball over the 
new defensive shifts that the data put in place. The result is longer games and less action. Take the most watched game of last year, the sixth and final game of the World Series. The ball was put in play once every six and a half minutes. In the last 26 minutes of the game, the ball was put in play twice. In April of this season, there were 1,100 more strikeouts than hits. Now, no one really is entertained by watching a guy walk to the plate, swing for a while, and then walk back to the dugouts. Not exciting. So uh, baseball is trying to figure out various rules changes, banning shifts, getting the sticky stuff off the pitcher's hands because that increased the spin rate, which makes the ball harder to hit. Various ways to increase the action because young people particularly, whose brains have been wired by their digital devices, are not, to say no, no more, patient about the dilatory pace of our what once was our national pastime. All right. You talk about yeah. strikeouts and your problem mm-hmm. with strikeouts. But you also have a problem that you say there are too many home runs. Don't fans love home runs? People love caviar, but if you had caviar three times a day, you'd have had enough of it. (laughs) Mae West was too much much of a good thing as wonderful. She was thinking of sex. That's not, that's different. Uh, The fact is that uh, home runs can be boring. Home runs are three seconds of excitement as the ball flies out of the ballpark, followed by a, a leisurely jog 360 feet. Uh, no. Uh, to, what you want to see are the great athletes, and they've never been more athletic, the major league players, with fielding the ball and throwing the ball and doing things like that. Major league players spend much more time with leather on their hands and with wood in their hands. Put the ball in play and let's see how wonderful they are at catching it. <laughs> um, uh, let, let me just um, throw in a bit, just two two rule changes that I would um, certainly support. One would be, um, I think the shift ought to be illegal. The shift is, um, I, I just is like it's like an abomination. It's there's something wrong with the with the with the, the infield shift, uh, and they shouldn't be allowed to do that. And then and then, batters should not be allowed to to between uh, every pitch, um, step away and rejigger their um, batting gloves. Um, and they all do that, and it is um, it is annoying and it takes time. And why are they allowed to to waste that much time? Okay. Yes, all you, um, all you is enforcement, and the rule exists that once that you have to stay in the batter's box unless you perhaps swung and fouled a pitch out. Just make people stay in the batter's box, which was routine until fairly recently. The last five, the last four minutes of this conversation is like sitting through an Italian lesson. I'm going to need some, uh, a lot of translation. (laughs) Eugene Robinson and George Will, we are out of time. As always, thank you for coming to First Look. (laughs) Ciao. (laughs) Ciao. Arrivederci. And I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Thank you for watching Washington Post Live's First Look. Go to Washington.com, WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about all of our upcoming programs. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, 
visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.